as women and women in music and all of these male dominated spaces, it's not just like people finding thin people more attractive. It's just about control. So one way of controlling women's bodies is making them feel like they should be physically taking up less space in a room. That was Blonde Shell. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. Sabrina Teitelbaum grew up in New York City, raised on a sonic palette of her parents' favorite classic and 90s rock and the pop stars of her generation like Ariana Grande and Christina Aguilera. Moving to Los Angeles to study at USC in their popular music program, Sabrina's focus became writing pop songs for studio sessions. But soon she began to realize that she no longer wanted to force herself to fit into the pop music mold when she started tapping into a much more honest and vulnerable side of her creation. Creativity. Sabrina finally found the freedom to be her authentic self in her music, and Blonde Shell was born. Her fantastic self-titled debut has just been released to rave reviews, and she joins us as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. Sabrina Teitelbaum, a.k.a. Blonde Shell, welcome to Shiro's Radio. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the debut album. Thank you. Would love to start getting to know you and your background, maybe starting with where did you and music first meet up in your life? I was obsessed with music just from like hearing it in the car and in random places. And we were like pop radio people as a family. So it was a lot of like Z100 New York stations. And then... I think my dad would play classic rock around the house and I would sort of like hear it in passing and be like, what is that? And kind of caught the bug that way. And I became really obsessed with all these classic rock bands and sort of like how it made me feel. And I think I got this like confidence from listening to all these guitar tones. And then we got a piano when I was like 10 or 12, like in that range. Because I think my parents were like, I feel like this is the right thing to do because you clearly care about music. And I started writing around that time as well. Whoa, right away when you were 10. Yeah. Do you remember what any of your early songs were about? Yeah, I had started writing a little bit before that just because I heard a lot of these pop songs and I was like, I want to make my own. And I don't think I had a lot to write about, obviously, as a kid. So I just was kind of trying to write similar themes that I heard on the radio. Right. Like, baby, I love you. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Or baby, don't leave me so brokenhearted. Yes. Exactly. Those two. My parents were like, what's going on? So how did you like taking piano lessons? Yeah, piano lessons were hard for me because I wasn't disciplined. So it was like... I would go in and the teacher would be like, did you practice your scales? And I would be like, no, but here's a Frankie Valley song I would like you to teach me. 
That was the vibe. Like Amazing. Yeah. They would be like, you need to do this, this, and this. And I'd be like, I don't want to do that, but I want to learn Hometown Glory by Adele. Can you teach me that? So, <laughs> And what yeah. did they say? Sometimes they would say yes, because I think they knew it was a lost cause. Like I wasn't going to do the stuff. I didn't like authority figures telling me what to do. So I was mm. like, I'm just not going to do it. And we're going to sit here for an hour. So they were like, all right, we'll learn the Adele song. Okay, so you had a rock and roll heart from the very beginning is what you're telling us. I guess so. Yeah. The rebel (laughs) spirit was alive and well in you at 10 years old. Yes. Okay. So where did the guitar come in? Were they like, okay, she's a rebel, give her a guitar? Or how did that go? I think I wanted to learn guitar. And I went to summer camp like any nice Jewish girl from New York. And they were like here are all of these things that you can choose from as options for like your free hour or whatever. And I wanted to learn guitar. So I think that was the first place that I ever took guitar lessons was at camp. I think they had like an acoustic guitar and you would go sit somewhere and they would teach you like classic rock songs or like Wonderwall. So so I, I think that was how I got introduced to guitar. But again, it was like, I just wasn't disciplined. So I didn't practice a lot. And I think the practicing has always just come from trying to write. So how did you get from that to where we are today with Blonde Shell? There was a big writing chapter in between, right? Like you kind of ended up following that course after you got out of high school. Yeah. Every opportunity that came up, I was like, yes, 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 yes. I'll just like do all everything. And I think just by nature of like being in LA and I went to USC and it was a lot of people who were working in pop and a lot of like session people. I kind of got into that session world. So I was doing pop sessions, but for my own project. And then when COVID happened, I was like, well, I can't do sessions. And like, I tried some zoom sessions was so bad. So I like had to write alone. And that was when I got all of the songs that are now on my album. So now you have finally found your stride as Blonde Shell. Yeah. I'm going to hit pause on the story and ask you to choose a song from the album. And maybe is there a song on this record that kind of feels like that was the spark? Yeah. Olympus was the first one that I wrote for the project. I think I just had a lot going on in my personal life. Lots of big decisions being made and a breakup and the world was right about to shut down all of this energy. And I went to one of those sessions with people I didn't really know. And what ended up coming out was like this very emotional, dark song that I really felt proud of and I really loved. But it was just like indicating that I needed to be working alone. And the guys were awesome that were there. It just was like, I felt like, okay, I need to leave the room if I want to write these lyrics. So I did that. And then I came back and was like, here's the melody and the lyrics. So I think writing the song was like, okay, I need to be writing more about these subjects and I need to be writing alone. So it was a big turning point, writing Olympus. Miss you, I still sounds like birds 
Bonchelle here with us on Shiro's Radio, Sabrina Teitelbaum, and that's Olympus from her self-titled debut. I'm Carmel Holt. So when you were talking about that moment when you were in the writing sessions and surrounded by the guys, I felt like it gave me a good segue to talking about working in music as a femme person Mm -hmm. and what that experience has been like so far. It sounds like you've really had to push your way out of things that weren't right for you into something that was right for you. You're surrounded by people that are producing you. What was that experience like? Well, I think... As a woman growing up wanting to be in music, there were a lot of messages that I got about how you have to do that and all of these rules that you have to follow, even if they weren't explicitly said. There were lots of messages that I got that I internalized and then carried with me when I was trying to make music, get my music heard, all of those things that I've had to unlearn. And I'm still in the process of unlearning. And I think because it's 2023, sometimes those messages, again, they're like not so explicitly said, but they're still there. Like, I think I picked up on a lot of messages about the focus on appearance for women and what your body's supposed to look like, how you're supposed to dress, what your hair is supposed to look like, what your makeup's supposed to look like, all of these things. and also about age. Like I felt this pressure from the time I was in high school to be like, well, I have 10 years to make this work. And after that, like people aren't buying records from new artists who are like in their thirties. That was the message I got about being a woman in music growing up and then continued to get like, they're just little comments that people make or little things people do that indicate the ideal for what a female musician should be. And I think the hardest part was working through all of that in my head. I didn't feel like I was going to sessions and people weren't listening to me, but I felt a lot of that internal pressure to like make it work and like the appearance thing and body image and that stuff has weighed on me and is something that I'm working through and have worked through a lot of, but I'm continuing to work through. Can you expand on the body image stuff and what that looks like in your head? Like what standards do you feel like you were expected to or wanted to even live up to in order to do music? Well, I think it felt different when I was like, I don't want to be a pop girl anymore. And even in my head, I'm not saying things like you have to be thin to be successful. But there are these images that I have in my mind where I was growing up, where like all of the successful female musicians were like a very specific body type that was really unattainable for almost anybody and very unattainable for me in terms of my genetics. And it's not who I am and it's not how I was born. And I think I really felt that pressure, just like how I imagined I was supposed to look. And I think with indie and alternative music, there's a little bit less pressure, but you still see it. Like all of the rock bands that I love from the nineties, you're looking at Hole, you're looking at all of these women who were like, talked about not just for their attitude and their music, but also everyone's like, and they're so hot. And that's such a big 
part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something in my head that was like, I know better than to feel like I have to look a certain way. And then there's a little voice that was like, yeah, but you probably still should. You probably still should try to look like Fiona Apple on her first two albums and three albums. And like a little voice was still there saying that. And I think I had to realize that and pay attention to it and listen to that little voice instead of trying to just like distract myself from it. I had to be like, no, that's there. There's a reality that I keep hearing that. So I need to actually address it. And so I had to do that for sure. So what are some tools? Is is there anything that you can share with us that worked for you to get through that, to navigate that? I think it's just a general finding compassion for myself. That was something that I was really focused on when I was making the album, when I'm thinking about body image, all of these things. And also like asking myself why, because for me, I've noticed that it's never about what it seems like it's about surface level. If I've been struggling and feel like guilty, because that was something I had when I was growing up, I would feel guilty for eating certain foods or eating certain amounts. Something I realized is like, it's not actually about the size of my body or the food, but it's about like, how much space am I allowed to take up in a room physically? Why do I feel like I have to make myself smaller and smaller until I'm non-existent? Like, wow, I had to ask myself those questions because it, it just doesn't make sense that that would be the whole thing. There's so much more to it than what's on the surface. Wow, that's f- I've never even thought about that as far as like the thin things yeah, goes yeah. and like being smaller. Whoa. Yeah, like as women and women in music and all of these male-dominated spaces, it's not just like people finding thin people more attractive. It's just about control. So one way of controlling women's bodies is making them feel like they should be physically taking up less space in a room. And so when I realized that, I was like, oh, that just makes me mad. I don't want to take up less space. And I think it comes up a lot in the music. Like I want to make my voice bigger and I want to make the music feel dramatic and have all these big emotions and not feel like I'm trying to water anything down for the same reason. Hell yeah. Take us to a song where you feel like you achieved that, if you wouldn't mind. I felt like I achieved that in sepsis. I was like singing about a relationship, but the feelings are so intense that I'm like, am I going to die from how I feel right now? And like, no, a broken heart was not going to kill me, but it felt like it might. And I just didn't want to water that down. What if I'm down to let this kill 
have Sabrina Teitelbaum here with us on She Rose Radio. Blonde Shell is the debut album and also what she records and performs as. And we just heard Sepsis, which I had earmarked myself as one of my favorites. And I wrote Liz Fair next to it. (laughs) I get that a lot. It's a compliment. Yeah. I think she's awesome. I'm always really interested because I'm sitting on this side of the conversation. I'm like, how are people in the press? How are journalists handling women's stories, right? Mm -hmm. When they're putting out records or any kind of art and, you know, who's writing the story? What's the headline? And in The Guardian, the headline was the New Yorker taps into the rage that women are often shamed for expressing on her impressive alt-rock debut. And I was like, ooh, who wrote that headline? Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) It's cool. Like I was like, yeah. And that was a dude that wrote that. Good on him. Good on him. But then I realized once I read through the article, it was a pull quote from you. And what you said was so true. Typically, women are given permission to be sad, but there's a lot of shame that gets attached to expressing anger. And unknowingly, I got in touch with that rage through the music. Yeah. I thought that was so smart. I just felt like there was a lot of permission to be sad and sing in a certain way and a certain voice and a certain register. And I think writing the album, I was like, I'm not going to put this out. Nobody's going to hear it. So I was like, I'm just going to do everything I want and say the things that maybe would be embarrassing for people to hear. And I'm going to sing it exactly how I want, which a lot of the time on this album is like a lower register for me. And I much prefer singing in a lower register. It was just one of those messages I got as a woman in music was like, I have to show how high I can sing all the time. And I have to show my range constantly because that's what will add value to me as a vocalist. Instead of how I'm emoting, what I'm singing about, I need to show that I can sing as high as possible and as low as possible. And when I was writing these songs, I was like, that's just not what's important to me. I'm going to sing in a way that feels comfortable, like sort of like wearing sweatpants. That's how the register feels to me. That's so interesting, too, because that sounds like a version of what I've heard before about women's voices. People who have said to me, I really admired Patti Smith, who didn't feel the need to sound pretty, you know, and that there's this pressure on us to have a soothing voice or a pretty voice. But the low high thing is interesting. And when you put it in that framework, I was like, was that something that you were taught in terms of pop music? Because I could see that pop music has such emphasis on women's vocal range. Totally. Like there, Mm -hmm. there are so many women in indie and alternative genres like Patti Smith, like Liz Fair, who have already done this and been like, I'm going to just sing how I want to sing. But I think for me and my particular background, the message that I got from being in the car on the way to school and what my friends listened to was like the Christina Aguilera, Gwen Stefani pop stars who amazing and very gifted vocalists sing in these really big ranges. Or even people at the time like Ariana Grande, where everyone was like praising them for that specific thing. I think since that's what I was around, that's what I thought I had to do, which for some people really is what they love and makes them feel good. But for me, wasn't the thing. But I still felt like I had to fit into that mold. Wow. So 
doing this project, I would imagine feels so liberating for you. Like you've kind of freed yourself of all of that from the image to the vocal range to all kinds of pressures that I didn't even really think about. That's crazy. Yeah. And I think part of it was because I was so isolated when I was writing this stuff. Like I was living alone. It was COVID. I was very scared of COVID and really conscious about who I was seeing. So it was such an internal process that was going on. And I think, I don't know that I would have made the album if that hadn't been what was going on externally for me. I wasn't seeing people. I wasn't going to parties. So I just had had to think through a lot of stuff. And it sounds like from the press that I've read and your own bio and press release, you did a lot of internal work on yourself, too. You were in therapy. You mm-hmm. caught yourself sober. Mm-hmm. It's all really major, major stuff. Yeah. But like, I don't want to minimize it by saying that it was really easy and I just did it and then like went through it. And here I am. It was very difficult but also a big relief and is something that still I I think will probably be happening forever. Like I'm tempted to follow a narrative that's like, and now I've made my album and here I am, but it's like, I'm still going to be in the process of working through a lot of things for a really long time. So I don't know. I have this idea of who I want to be in 30, 40, 50 years, et cetera. And it always ends up being like Carol King or Barbara Streisand, not in terms of like their success as musicians, but in terms of the images that get thrown around about them as these very grounded, happy Jewish mom type people. That's the image that I have of myself having gone through therapy in like 30 years. Thank you for that. Thank you for that (laughs) aspirational image. I love it. Uh, Yeah. I want to look like Carol King and have her energy. You know, and also it's amazing to think about the long career that you have ahead of you. And I'm curious whether that part of your concerns or your worry or your internalized misogyny, that's the patriarchy talking, by the way, like I got to hurry because I'm running out of time. Ageism is still such a real thing. Like, did you watch the Grammys, by the way? No. I watched like some of the performances and stuff like that, but I was on tour when it happened. Okay. So Bonnie Raitt, you know, she won Song of the Year. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether that's going to be a game-changing moment or not, but in my mind, I was like, finally, you know? Yeah. But that happens so rarely. So rarely. But I feel like it's happening more often now. And I'm seeing more musicians who like they've been around, but they're having their moment like later and later, like on their fourth album instead of their first album. And I think that's another thing for women is like, you feel like you have to, or I'll speak for myself. I felt like I had to come out of the gate with like the most solid sense of self and identity musically, but it's like, that wouldn't make sense for on your first album to know like, this is who I am entirely. And it's a relief to me and it's inspiring to me to see women getting their moment on their third or fourth or fifth album when they're not 25 and they're not just 
getting their foot in the door. Like this idea of breaking an artist, it's just not how it works. Like it takes years of figuring out who you are as a musician before you can get that. So that too. I just want to bottle everything that you're saying. <laughs> it's so good and, and so awesome that you have that perspective at 25 too. And seeing the music industry for what it is, I mean, you know, music industry might strike me down for saying this, but it's a pretty toxic place still. Yeah. And for women, such a toxic place. Yeah. And reinforces so many of those tropes and so many of those stigmas and so yeah. much of that stuff. And then we end up in this weird double bind where we're like, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. Like what I just said, like you keep like qualifying or like self-editing exactly. in order to get the thing and do the thing. But yet, why? Why are we still like walking around in fear? I don't know. That's so true. And like, as somebody that's so new and just like, has started putting music out under this name and all of that, I do feel that hesitation and like self-editing and want to sort of not be so brazen and talk about all of my problems with the music industry. And at the same time, want things to keep changing. So it really is that internal conflict that you're talking about of like, don't bite right. the hand that feeds you, but also... I want things to keep getting better. Music is such a relationship-based business. You need to talk about the hard stuff. Yeah, that's so true. and it's, Which is why we're here. You yeah. Know? But it's like it, it requires, I think, something I've learned about relationships in the last couple of years. And it's obvious in hindsight, but like you can't do the work on both sides. You can't do the work for the other person. You can have the conversation and say, hey, here are the things that aren't working for me that I would like to talk about. But if the other person's like just defensive or not willing to hear it, it's not going to get you anywhere. But I do sort of feel like entertainment industry or the music industry in particular, lots of cultural problems that are going on that like we want to figure out are sort of amplified in entertainment because it's an industry that everybody's observing. So I think it's also exciting to see these changes and like see Bonnie Raitt get song of the year and things like that, because sometimes it feels like entertainment is an indicator of what's going to happen in other industries as well. Yeah. So may that be a bellwether for what's coming next. Yeah. I hope yeah. So. Speaking of being outspoken, I'm going to use this as a segue to talk about Salad, one of my favorites on the album. Salad is my favorite song to do live. The way I was prefacing the song was if you're pissed about something or at somebody or you really have a lot of anger that you want to get out, maybe this is a good opportunity for all of us. Because I've been so worried about coming off as crazy, particularly with that song. I don't know. The song's about a fantasy of murdering someone. So I was like, I am sort of scared to sing this song live. And I think that ended up being my favorite one to do when we were on tour. That song for me, it's just about like loving somebody who has something really awful happen to them and like watching the injustice and not knowing what to do with all of that anger. It wasn't really meant to be a commentary on anybody else's experience, but I think there was also an element of like, why does this happen so much? This is obviously not just an experience that I went through with this other person. This happens all the time. Like, why does this keep happening? 
Right. The line that you say, it doesn't happen to women I know. I put it in a box in a TV show. It doesn't happen to women I know. God, tell me, why did he hurt my girl? And she took him to the courthouse and somehow he got off. And then I saw him laughing with his lawyer in the parking lot. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that scenario, not because of myself, but like we all know that scenario. Yeah, Yeah. we all know that scenario. And I think we all also kind of feel like it's a larger than life kind of situation. So like, no, that happens on SVU. And then it's like so common and it's everywhere that somehow suddenly it affects you and people you love. And you're like, wait, I compartmentalized that so much that I was like, that would never happen. We're different. That's not going to happen to people that I'm in close, close contact with. And then it does. And you're like, what the, this doesn't make any sense. Keep it. Salad from Blonde Shell, the self-titled album from Sabrina Teitelbaum, who's here with us on Shiro's Radio. I'm Carmel Holt. We're having such an amazing conversation, and I want to thank you for going so deep with me and being willing to go there. Yeah, thank you. You used the phrase woman in music while we've been chatting today, and it's something that I grapple with a lot. I have a show called Shiro's, right? And I'm talking to women in music and I never know how else to say, but that's who I'm talking to. It's like women in music and non-binary people that want to be inclusive, but also may there be a time where we don't need to gender ourselves. I know. Like we don't need to be a female musician or a woman in music or a female guitarist or a female vocalist. And I kind of wanted to workshop that with you a little bit. Is that a moniker that makes you uncomfortable or do you embrace it? What are your thoughts there? It doesn't make me uncomfortable. And I am coming from the perspective of I am a queer person and my gender has been fluid throughout my life, but I do identify as a woman ultimately. And I think it doesn't make me uncomfortable, particularly when we're talking about it in the context of I'm a woman in music, because What I'm talking about when I'm saying this is my experience as a woman in music, I'm not talking about my identity and how I see myself. I'm talking more about how like if I play a show and I go to a venue or I go to a session or it's an interview or whatever, I'm talking about how I'm being perceived. Like I walk into a room and I am perceived as a woman in music and treated accordingly. I think it doesn't make me uncomfortable because I don't feel necessarily like that's the box I'm putting myself in and I'm talking about my identity that way. I think I'm just talking about my experience of how others see me. 
And would you consider yourself a feminist? Yeah, definitely. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Some people find it to be also a very complicated, tricky word. Yeah. No, I definitely do identify as a feminist. And I think the experiences that I'm talking about as a woman in music also include all of the privileges that I have as a white woman in music. And I think right. that's important to talk about when we're talking about the word feminist, because yes, like the problems that I've had with that word are just with past waves of feminism that are not thinking about intersectionality. So what do you think we can do to make music more inclusive? I think just continue to talk about the things that we're talking about now and ask the questions we're asking mm-hmm. and also be aware of how much space we're taking up. Like when we're thinking about, I feel like men want me to take up less space. I also don't in turn want to take up more space than I feel like is fair because I don't have it as hard as so many other people in this industry. So I also don't want to be taking up other people's air and other people's space who have things that they need to talk about that are more pressing than the things that I need to talk about. So I think that's Mm. one way to help make it a better industry and more inclusive industry. And I think also being intentional about who we hire, you know, and who we work with. Yeah, yeah. And I've been having lots of conversations about that, too, like even down to like your team and your crew and in the studio, who's your producer, who's your mix engineer, who's mastering your record. Yeah. I think you you worked with on tour who's supporting you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all choices. Totally. And it reminds me of how we were saying, like, it's like being in a relationship and saying, here are the things that I'm having a hard time with in the relationship. I think it's also important to be the other person on the other side that's not being defensive, but is listening and thinking critically about here are some things I've done wrong and some ways that I could be better on the other side as well. So do you have any thoughts about how you've shaped your team and are you happy with how things are set up for you right now? Or do you have any goals going forward? Yeah, I think I want to continue to be thinking about that critically, like what you're talking Mm -hmm. about and be Mm -hmm. conscious about who I'm working with and who I'm going on tour with and all of these things. But I do feel like my team is really solid right now. And I feel really heard also with the people that I work with. I think that was something I also had to learn because a lot of the relationships in music, it's partnerships. It's not like I'm working for somebody or somebody's working for me. So I think those relationships are also hard to navigate. And it's another reason why I'm very happy that this is happening for me at 25 and not at 18, because I wouldn't know how to have those relationships that are partnerships and aren't like I'm working for somebody or somebody's working for me. And you have to create all of these boundaries because of the nature of the working relationships. So yeah, I'm very happy that I'm not 18 right now doing this. (laughs) I always think about that. Like Mm -hmm. it ended up being the opposite. I like wanted to be older when all this was happening. And you're off to such a great start. It's so exciting. I can't wait to see what's ahead for you. Thanks. Um, may this be the first of many times that we sit down to catch up. Yeah. 
before I let you run off, I always love to close the conversations by handing my guests the Shiro's magic wand. It's been called a heavy wand by some guests. Okay. The wand bestows upon you the power to change anything for women in music. There's no wrong answers. I know that there is probably a lot of answers, but just whatever comes to your mind, what would you change if you were holding the magic wand? I just want to continue to see different types of bodies in music and having success in music. I think I think of that because that is something that affects me a lot. And the stuff we were talking about with body image still affects me. And so I think there are lots of ways that we can see diversity of bodies in music. And that would probably be the thing I could do with the wand. It is a heavy wand because there are a lot of things that need to be changed. Yeah, I know. I know. And I feel like we touched on a lot of them, too. But it's always fun to close on that note of like a vision for the future as you would see it. Pick a song, if you would, to take us out today off of Blonde Shell. Okay, Kiss City. I wouldn't have written it if I thought people would hear it. But now I'm happy that people get to hear it. With thanks to Sabrina Teitelbaum, Blanchelle. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Sabrina Teitelbaum for being with us. Her self-titled debut as Blonde Shell is available now on Partisan Records. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at She Rose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.